Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March the 16th, 2015, and this is episode 1535 of the Survival Podcast. And since it's Monday, it is a listener feedback show. This is where you send me emails to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Include TSPC in the subject line and then like question for Jack or video for Jack or whatever it is you're sending me. Give me your question or make your point in one sentence. Uh, provide a link if you have one, and then if you have any continuing details, hit the return key a couple times and put it down there. That will help me scan your email and make it more likely that it will get through to me and onto a show like this or personally responded to. I probably, just so you guys know, I probably respond to emails, probably 200 to 300 emails personally uh, every week. Uh, that's probably one day's worth. I don't all do it on one day, but it's probably one day's worth, so it's not necessarily you're always going to need a response, but... Uh, if you've never got a response from me, keep emailing me because sooner or later you, you probably will or else you'll hear yourself on the show. I do what I can. Uh, I'm limited in time like any human being. So I do want you guys to know I still personally read all my own email and personally respond to all my own email um, where and as I can based on temporal limitations. Something I started doing when the show very first began over seven years ago now and something I've always continued to do to stay in touch with you guys. Sometimes people don't like the response you get, but you always get an honest one uh, based on my view and my opinion and the question that you asked. Anyway, before I get into uh, your feedback this week, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one is Fortress Defense Consultants. That's Frank Sharp Jr. and his awesome Awesome, awesome, awesome cadre of instructors that are not only great teachers but perpetual students, each of them taking multiple training courses from other instructors every year, knowing that the minute you stop learning, you actually begin a decline in your skill set. That's why they are such top-notch guys. And uh, everybody, and I mean everybody that's gone to see Frank Sharp and get training from him has emailed me with just tremendous feedback. Give them a chance and you'll see why. Remember, if you're going to carry a weapon, then it behooves you to have first uh, quality top-notch training to go along with that weapon. Uh, people think that they will default to their highest level of skill, and actually you'll default to probably your highest level of training uh, in a stressful situation. That's two to three seconds for you to figure out what's going on is enough time for someone else or yourself to end up dead. Uh, it's that immediate response and understanding how to react and how to move forward and how to keep yourself alive, including things like how not to be shot by another good guy. Uh, these are things that you need to have training for. Frank does great training. Check him out today, FortressDefense.com. Next up today, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? Hard to believe, but he sells Berkey water filtration systems. But look, don't be the guy that gets your Berkey from the guy at the gun show that doesn't even know how the daggone thing works, but he added it to his line of products because somebody told him prepping was hot now. Uh, Jeff is one of the most long-term and largest distributors of Berkey systems in the country. And because of that, he gets great pricing that he passes along to you. He's got mani just maniacal customer service uh, ethics. It's just unbelievable how how much he does to help uh, his customers and make sure they're taken care of. And he has more than just Berkey's, guys. If you check out Jeff, you'll see that he has a, a whole litany of stuff for you for your prepping needs at Directive21.com. Again, the website, Directive21.com. Next up, 
Uh, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. It was 1535. I have Running for Cover, the Coverdale Bible is published. The Man for All Seasons is Sir Thomas More. And Pizarro wins the war against the Barbary Pirates all the way from Peru. Which, if you know anything about the Barbary Pirates, would make you go, how's that work? So that's the one I've chosen to read. The Pizarro brothers have been ransacking everything the Incas have with the help of the tribes that the Incas had dominated for years. But the Pizarro brothers have no respect for any of the tribes. They've put a puppet Inca emperor to rule and have abused him terribly. They've also sent whole shifts worth of gold, about one million ducats, back to the king of Spain, who is also the Holy Roman Emperor, just in time to fund his war against the Ottomans at Tunis. Uh, the Sultan has been building up a navy of 70 galleys led by Barbarossa, and just when it seems they're ready to rock and roll, the Emperor's fleet slides in and devastates them. Galleys of the Ottomans with Jews chained to the oars battle. Galleys of the Emperor with Protestants chained to the oars. Apparently Protestants are better than jurors in the oars department. Barbarossa escapes capture, but the stench of 30,000 rotting corpses forces the Emperor to move his camp a little further away than he planned. My take by Alex Shrug. Before everyone starts patting Pizarro brothers on the back, it looks like they held back a million gold ducats for themselves. Tunis itself will be recaptured a few decades later in 1574 and will remain a problem for Christian shipping until 1830 when France finally invades Algeria. In case anyone was wondering, yes, these are the same Barbary pirates that figure into President Jefferson's calculations when he plans an overseas contingency operation against these pirates of American shipping in the Mediterranean Sea along with pirates from Tripoli and Algiers. Um, see, I think the lesson that I get out of this is this with the Barbary pirates, right? We, we have this tendency to name things. And we think of once we've named something that it is what it is, right? Like, so if you wanted to conquer America, well, if you took over Washington, D.C., you'd be a long way towards your goal, wouldn't you? And this country has borders and a constitution and a population that identifies themselves as Americans. And most countries work that way. The problem for most nations when they seek to attack something that they've named is they attack it as though it's a nation. And when I say a nation, I mean a state with borders and you know procedures and laws and somebody that speaks for the whole, elected or you know monarchy or whatever. Um, and then you turn around and you attack something like the Barbary Pirates, like there's a headquarters that says the Barbary Pirates or something. Well, the Barbary Pirates are this disjointed group of people that just do whatever the hell they want. They may have some coordination and some level of uh, procedure and policy, but basically anybody that wants to do it can just get a boat and some guys willing to steal and kill and go do it. They're called that mainly because of where they're at. Right? There's no place to invade and take over and have one person surrender and everybody else gives up. Sound familiar? Does it? Yeah. That is a textbook uh, way to fight guerrilla warfare for good or evil. And realize that when you're fighting a battle, you're not good or evil based on so much your tactic, but based on your intention. So right now, I would say that we are engaged in a guerrilla war with our own nation, the state, uh, to have our freedoms and our rights uh, recognized, not restored, because they don't come from the state. Our ability to feed ourselves, choose what we eat, 
to, to own our own property and not have it, you know, all these different regulations shoved down your throat. Well, you can do your own land. Um, like, you're not allowed to camp on your own land for more than three weeks because then you're living there and that's illegal. The stupid shit like that. And this disjointed, you know, confederation of homesteaders and permaculturists and real food advocates and things like that are fighting this war. And you can't stop us because we're not, we're, we're, we're joined in principle, but we're, we're not joined in apparatus or system. You, if you, if you take over Jack Spirico's place, well, it doesn't do you any good with all this other stuff popping all over like whack-a-mole. Right, and you can only whack the mole so hard before the people you're in control of that are on your side go. Wait a minute, you can't whack that mole that hard. That mole wasn't really doing anything to you. But on the other hand, it can be used for evil. Now, um, I do think a lot of the hype around ISIS is just that hype. Scare the people of this country so they will back yet more bombing of more people that have no interest in anything that goes on over here at all. But there are people there that, as I've said before, that are part of that movement that will totally cut your head off. They would have no problem cutting your head off right now. And they're using the same ideology. You can't invade. There's no ISIS headquarters, right? There's no place where if you lower their flag and raise yours, you've, you've made anything happen. So they're a very difficult, difficult uh, enemy to fight. And the best way to fight enemies like that is generally to make sure that they can't harm you, Um and starve them out. Now, the bad news for ISIS is they're actually pretty easy to starve out if we wanted to. And uh, the bad news for the people that would try to shut down the insurrection that is taking our lives back is that we're planting trees and growing food. and We're pretty hard to starve out. My take by Jack Spirico. Anyway, with that, I want to remind you that if you want to help support the work I do here at the Survival Podcast, you can join the Members Support Brigade. I'd love to have you as a member. If you've recently expired or what have you and uh, want to come back, I'd love to have you back. And uh, it is the primary way that we fund everything that we do here at the Survival Podcast. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members so you can sign up there. And I have a new benefit coming for you guys this week. I'll announce it probably tomorrow when I get it included in the MSB for you. And I've got some other stuff I'm working on for you as well. But the MSB does more than pay for itself. And uh, if you join again, you'd be really uh, helping to keep the work that we do here going strong for many years to come. Uh, also, if you're a military, law enforcement, or Peace Corps, or active duty, uh, or, or prior service, either one, or a first responder, active duty, or prior service, such as a EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, you qualify for a discount. Just email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com, uh, service discount TSPC in the subject line, and one sentence, tell me about your service, and I will get you a discount code. Do this before, not after you join. With that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. Um, first up, before I get into any of your feedback, I have an announcement. I'm going to start this spring doing like working weekend stuff for people that want to come to a workshop but never have been able to due to the time and the cost. Uh, so they really won't be like a workshop. They'll be like a one-day event. So we're going to do the first one this coming Saturday. Uh, show up around 10. Uh, we'll give you a briefing on what we're doing. And we'll, we'll work from about 10 to 1. And then about 1 o'clock we'll have lunch. It'll be an awesome lunch. Pulled pork this time around. And uh, maybe a beer or two. You know, we're not using any heavy equipment, just shovels and stuff this time. So we probably have a midday beer uh, for those that want to partake in that. And then we'll go back to work around 2 o'clock and we'll probably work till about 5. So about 6 hours of work. And uh, a lot of fun in, in the meantime. We get to meet some other really cool people. Uh, and then we'll break around 5. 
And uh, whatever's left over the food, maybe we'll hammer that and bring some chips out and, you know, a few more beers. Uh, but everybody be easy that's driving because, you know, that'll be the end of it. You know, we'll hang out for an hour or so, uh, talk about things, answer your questions, walk around the property, show you whatever you're interested in. And, uh, we'll, you know, we'll break then and everybody go home. I'm not limiting the head count at all, but I am limiting it to 12 vehicles. So people that can ride share and stuff like that, that would be helpful. Just, you know, parking on the property as we're trying to rehab it is, especially when it's wet and muddy like it is this time of year. Uh, this first one, we will either be planting uh, a bunch of support species into the food forest, or we will be doing living fence and irrigation installation. And the only way we won't be doing the living fence and irrigation is if it rains too much this week and the ground's too disgusting. Uh, in that case, we can go into the food forest and plant the, the support species just fine, uh, but we may not want to dig trenches in, in muck. So um, anyway, that's uh, that's we'll be doing one or the other, and I will probably be doing it the next Saturday as well. If not, it'll be the one after that. I have to talk to Dorothy about that and decide if we want to do two in a row or not. Um, but basically, it's it's lunch and beer and cokes and water and tea uh, in return for six hours of your work and hopefully giving you a really great time at no real cost. And we'll probably try to do four or five of these this year. The truth is, I need the help. There's so much that needs to happen in the next few weeks, uh, next next couple months, that is not going to happen if I try to do it on my own. And I can't do a spring workshop this year. I've got too much other things going on. Uh, so we'll probably do two full workshops this fall, one early fall and one mid-fall. And uh, other than that, uh, these will be kind of stand-ins. And this will be really great for anybody that's local, you can drive in in a day. Uh, if I got somebody that's going to have to drive in and need a place to crash overnight, I could take one or two people that I would let do that uh, per event. Uh, but I can't have everybody doing that. This is, this is really going to be kind of like, there's your bed, dude. See ya. We're done for the night. Um, and Sunday morning, we may have things that Dorothy and I are getting up and doing. So. Um, hopefully we'll have a lot of people turn up for this. And I think it'll be a lot, a great way for a lot of you guys that are somewhat local to really meet a lot of other people in the community. Um, and maybe organize your own work-ins in different places and things like that. So anyway, with that, let's get into the, uh, the feedback that we have on today's show, uh, since it is Feedback Monday. And there is a post on the blog, um, that'll be just, bef just before, Today's episode, uh, 1535, and I'll put a link to it in today's show notes as well, where you can get full details of how to show up and uh, a link to a forum thread where you can partner with people to ride share if you want to do that. Anyway, um, first email is like a subject that's different for a Monday show. Haven't had a question like this in a while. Real practical question. Jack, what would you do? Get a new grill or get replacement parts? I brought a Brinkman gas grill about three years ago, and now the flavor bars and grates are chipping and rusted. Did I not coddle them correctly? I'm really sick of cheap stuff. Replacement drop-in parts are between 122 and 147, depending on if I get stainless steel flavor bars or porcelain enamel ones. A new Weber is 449, but it looks like, like the same pieces would be porcelain enamel. Thanks, Brian. Um, well, it, it's probably the case that this grill of yours has, you know, another three years of, of life in it for 150 bucks. Versus 450 for a Weber. So from a financial aspect, you'd be better off putting the replacement parts in. Uh, if you go with the stainless parts that are a little bit more, there's a reason they're a little bit more. It'll probably last a little bit longer. Uh, so maybe you get four years out of it. And, you know, that would be seven years. Seven years out of a grill, you've, you've worn it pretty hard out. Um, if you're looking at a Weber for 450 You're probably looking at like the Spirit E210 in that range. 
And the thing about that grill is, first of all, don't pay $450 for it if that's the grill you're looking at. Because you can get it for $400, $399 on Prime right now, have it delivered by tomorrow, and uh, no shipping if you have Prime, and save $50. Bucks. Um, of course, you're going to pay sales tax, but you'd pay that at the store too. So if that is indeed the grill you're looking at, don't spend the extra $50. Have it shipped to your house. Uh, the Webers, though, that sell in the, like, $370 to $450, $500 range are what you'd call their entry-level grills. And they cut the price with things like you're talking about, porcelain, you know, porcelain to enamel versus stainless steel, which has a much longer life expectancy because uh, it's not just a, a carbon steel underneath some paint, which is basically what the porcelain stuff is. So it won't rust, and it, it, just, it just lasts longer. They, they are better, though. Uh, if you just pick up a, a Brinkman or a Charbroil or a Broil King or something like that uh, in weight and feel a Weber of the same kind of size and proportions and power, you just the weight alone, you know you're dealing with a heavier, better built item. Um, but to get into the Webers that are like your you know high quality, really long term uh, grill, you're looking at spending six, seven hundred dollars or more. Uh, it's just It's just the way it goes. That's what it takes to buy the level of quality that you're you're probably looking for. Um, you know, kind of like the the lowest priced, but kind of top end Webers are about the 750 range. You know, and you're you're looking at like the EP310 at that point. Um, as you can tell, I am kind of a grill, grill geek, and I've spent a lot of time figuring this out for myself. Um, I have a charbroil that's an infrared small grill that I use for most of the stuff we cook on the porch, and I like it because it's little, and uh, you know, I basically burned one out in about three years of just totally abusing the hell out of it. Bought another one, and it's it works great. Uh, I could have rebuilt the old one, but at the price they were selling them for on sale at the time, it was like, yeah, just get another one. Use the other one for heating stuff up. Uh, but long-term looking at you know grilling, And having something that's, you know, once I get kind of the outdoor kitchen area set up, that's really a long-term high-end grill, I'm probably going to have to eventually plunk down around 800 bucks uh, for like a, a Weber Genesis. And it's probably about the best the best thing at that price point without going to true commercial-grade stuff that you can get. But all of the Webers have a feature that I don't know why most of the other grills don't have. And it's the number one thing that keeps them from burning out their elements, even if they're the lower-quality one. And if you if you go into a like a box store where they have the grills assembled and just open the cabinet and look underneath, you'll see what it is. And Weber's the only one that I've seen like this. Weber's underneath the burners have a great big hole, and then a, a drip pan significantly below that hole. And what that causes to happen is all the stuff that drops down that can catch on fire drops significantly below the burners, and then runs down the pan into the drain catch. Most of your other grills, if you look up under there, you'll see that they have kind of a funnel shape to a small hole. And that leaves a lot more for the drippings to accumulate on and catch fire. And it's those under fires down there where the burner's not just doing what it's supposed to do. It's basically got a grease fire going on throughout the... And a lot of times you have these small, you know, small, seemingly insignificant things. You get a hot spot on your grill, you got to move your food or something, but it's not a big deal. But day after day, year after year of that type of thing happening, 
wears out these elements and wears out the, the heat distributors and things like that and uh, it weakens things and burns off paint and then rust starts to get in and then you know the grill sits over the winter and even if it's covered you get moisture in there and that rust accelerates and things break and drop and fall out and fall apart. So I would say that you're better off going with the Weber that even the you know kind of entry level price point stuff uh, that you're looking at in the $400, $450 range Um, they're still so much better than everything else that's out there, and um, and, and you know take good care of it and keep it clean, and it'll probably last you for years and years and years. But if you want to, you know, if you want to step up a little bit, you know, get the Webers that have all the equipment in stainless and you know maybe cast grills. Uh, so I like to use a cast iron grill surface myself. Uh, but I like everything down below there to be, you know, as much of it to be as stainless as possible, uh, and you just get better life out of that. And and your your better grills are like I said, like stepping up into like the Genesis or the EP310. Those are kind of where you get into that almost commercial quality, you know. And and they just I'll tell you the other thing too. If you ever cook on one, you, you'll you'll see the difference right away. The power that they have to get food really hot, but yet to go down to really low temperatures and be able to move from searing to cooking really, really quickly, uh, to be able to keep things like chicken at a low, slow temperature, but be able to cook a thick steak at a higher temperature and get that char. Uh, the only thing that I've, I've used that, that compares is the, the char broil infrareds. And they're not the most rugged grill, but, God, the performance out of them is outstanding. And they're just something that you have to clean often. If you clean it often, you'll do better. And here's a little tip. When you guys are cooking something that's been marinated and has a lot of like gooey, gooky crap on it when you first goes on the grill, lay down some foil, poke a few holes in it, put your food on there until that marinade sort of kind of glazes over and isn't so sticky anymore and kind of cooks and then move then you know take, remove your foil and go onto the grill and you'll get a lot, lot less of that gooey stuff and with the infrared grills that have a little bitty holes in the the reflector plate that'll keep those holes from getting clogged up anyway uh good question and certainly something different for a uh a monday we didn't lead off with a news story for once so thanks for that question i hope that helps you and again i would go with the lower priced weber if you're willing to step up but i would really think about it and say do you want to just you know buy something you're going to have for 10 years If you want to do that and you want it to be as good in nine years as it is in the second year, you know, look into that $700 price point. It's hard to do, but there's a reason it costs more. It's, and with the case of Weber's, it's worth it. Here's an interesting, uh, complex question from Lane. Lane says, how should we recommend that our Native American and Afro-American brothers spend their time and energy today? They want equality among all Americans, but they focus all their time and energy on our past misdeeds. Hundreds of Native Americans here in Tennessee are protesting the birthday of Andrew Jackson. He was our eighth president. This will be his 252nd birthday. Yes, he was guilty of horrible treatment of our Native Americans 200 years ago. Constant dialogue about how slaves were treated over 150 years ago. And even our poor, poor uh, actions in Selmar AL, AL 50 years ago. We are not where we need to be today, but we are making progress. I think the constant complaining about the past does more harm than good lane. I agree. I don't, I don't know what you do about it. I, I basically, this is my philosophy now. If you want to bitch to me about the fact that you're black or Asian or Native American or whatever it is, and anything anybody ever did to you in the past, um, 
I don't care. I just don't give a shit. Right? We have we have what we have. We have now. And I think there's a lesson we can learn from from dogs. Right? In this, a dog doesn't live in 15 minutes ago. Though he learned 15 minutes ago, and he takes that lesson forward. But dogs don't live two weeks ago. They don't live six months ago. They don't live five years ago. They live now. Now they could have been damaged in the past. But once they get over whatever emotional, spiritual damage they have, it's all about now, baby. I don't care about yesterday. And they don't care about tomorrow either. And that's probably not a good thing for us, but there is a certain amount of getting shit done that happens when you focus on this is... So now now is always becoming more as a way to look at the temporal thing. there. So it's not looking at the future. It's not necessarily ignoring now. Because now is this moment and forever forward. And, and that's that's kind of the way that we need to be looking at things. And I've had some sob story bullshit sent to me uh, by members of the audience of, of different races or backgrounds or religions or whatever. And my response was always, well, when did this happen to you? And there's usually not an answer to that. And I'll also say this to, to my fellow Americans that happen to be black, okay? When you tell me you're an African-American, what part of Africa are you from? You know, I mean, I really liked uh, the one girl from the, the Cosby Kids group that when she was asked by Oprah something about, as an African-American, how do you feel about whatever it was? And Oprah, Oprah almost had a heart attack when she said, well, I don't consider myself an African-American. I'm from New Orleans. I'm from Louisiana. And I, I identify a hell of a lot more that way than I do with Africa. I, I wasn't born there. My mother wasn't born there. My grandfather wasn't born. And of course, Oprah's like, oh, girl, wait till you hear what happens over this. People are going to be tweeting and whatever. But I mean, she had it right. All we have is where we're at today. And, and people say, well, you know, if it was your family, maybe you'd feel different. Guys, I'm not part of any of your crap in this country with, with, uh, with slavery and the Civil War. My family got here in the 1890s. And the people that we left behind, many of them never made it out of the Ukraine, and they died in the 30s in Holodorma. Okay? So the other thing is the slavery thing. There's been, and we're going to see more and more of it throughout the history segment. We just had it today. You had Jewish slaves rowing one boat and Protestant slaves rowing another boat. The, the, the enslavement of, of the black race in this country just happens to be one of the most recent forms of slavery, and it's, yeah, approaching 200 years, guys. I mean, at some point, you got to stop worrying about what your great-great-grandfather went through and think about what are you going to do for your grandkids. And you can't be looking to the future for your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren if you're still carrying wounds that were never inflicted upon you but your ancestors. There's probably not a person in this country that if they went back Ten generations can't find some level of oppression that occurred because of who they are, what they believed, or where they lived. And it doesn't matter if you're white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, right? I'm sorry. Even the wasp, go back. Um, I had a, a guy out in California point out something very interesting to me. He said, we should all be looking for our tribal roots because we all come from tribes. The, the whole of Europe was a tribal society not that long ago. White guys had tribes too. That, that's pretty interesting. I, I, you know, but I don't know how to advise people other than shut up and get on with your life. And, and here's the thing. I'm equal opportunity. 
I'll tell you to shut up and get on with your life if you're white. I'll tell you to shut up and get on with your life if you're black. I'll tell you to shut up and get on with your life if you're Asian. I'll tell you to shut up and get on with your life if you're Jewish or Christian or Protestant or Muslim. I don't care who you are. You'll get the same treatment from me that, you'll, that anybody else will of any other race, religion, sex, orientation. I don't care. I care if you're doing good shit. And I think that all you see today is that it's just another way to divide us And who does it benefit? You know, when, when, when people are protesting in Ferguson because they're black and they feel that they're not treated right because they're black, who benefits from that? The, 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 it doesn't benefit the people protesting. It doesn't benefit the people that are seeing the protests. It benefits the people in power. It benefits the people in power. So maybe what we all need to do is just start asking ourselves a question from, from this point forward. When we're going to take an action or make an argument, the successful act, the completion of the action or the successful sounding of the argument, who benefits from it? And if the answer is the people in power benefit, stop doing it. Stop doing it. And it doesn't matter if, the, if you're doing it and the people that empower benefit from it are the, 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 the black caucus of the Congress. They're still the people in power. They still don't give a shit about you. They don't care. They don't give a damn. These people that run our country, they don't give a shit about you. If, if you have a common color of skin, they might use it, but they don't care. And, and you know, I understand the Native American is basically saying this was our land and you took it from us, but it was your, it was probably somebody else's land when your tribe took it too. That's over. It's done. We're not going to go back and put it back the way it was. I'm sorry. I wish it didn't happen, but it did. And it's and, and there is there is only now and the future that we can change that we can actually write. We cannot rewrite history. Plenty of people have tried, but the reality is what is was, what was is, and that's it. Okay, but we can change our future because our future is yet to be written. I I don't know if that helps, and if I had the answer to this question, I'd probably be really wealthy because this is a question that we've been circling around for generations now. But I'll just put it to you this way. We don't still have work to do. Uh, just because some people are racist assholes. Because no laws, no policies will ever make racist assholes go away. But I'll tell you what will make racist assholes go away. Shunning them on all sides. If you're a black racist asshole, I have no use for you. If you're a white racist asshole, I have no use for you. You're a Native American racist asshole, F off, okay? I have no use for you either. I consider all racist people to be scum. And the only way they can cease to be scum is to drop their bullshit and basically have a repentance and an admission this was wrong, and embrace all humans as their brothers and sisters, or F off, you are a racist scumbag asshole. And I think if you want to solve this problem, that, again, policies and laws won't solve it, but an attitude by all of us, that if you're a racist, regardless of the color of your skin, you're an asshole, that actually probably would do a lot more to encourage change. Just my thoughts. Let's take another one. Another will have a weird question for a Monday, but it was interesting. Another interesting question. This comes from JJ. JJ says, can you explain what it is about you that makes you get out there every day, kick life in the balls and say, I'm Jack Spirico and I don't give a damn what anybody thinks about it. Also, how are you so clear-headed? seems like I'm a mental fog half the time. Well, 
the, the clear-headedness is, is debatable. Um, you know, whenever I'm on the air presenting stuff to you, I have time to sit and think and put myself in an emotional checkmate, so to speak, about the issue that I'm responding to and use anger and forceful words when they're called for versus just because I'm pissed off. Um, I'd love to tell you I live my entire life that way, but I don't know that I do. And there's times where I just can't figure out something, I can't think, and I, honestly, for someone that's, uh, that functions the way I do, it's very frustrating. Um, most things I can look at and find a solution to in about three seconds. And then the things that I actually know what to do, but I have to work out like all the pieces and parts that go into it and not leave anything out, where I actually have to think, I need to be left alone to think. And I'm, I'm a dick, just to be honest, when anybody interrupts me, when I'm in that that process, my wife will tell you that. If I'm calculating how many parts I need to put together in an irrigation system, just don't speak to me till I'm done writing it down. Because I can't think as clearly as you might, you know, like I'm some kind of gifted individual. I think we all have our weaknesses. And I think that what it is is we all have areas in life where we function very highly from an IQ standpoint. Like a generic IQ number is all, all good and well, but I think that Every human being has areas where they're actually a genius when they're in that place. And it's probably something they care about and they're passionate about. And I think that the, the biggest reason that I can give you this appearance is that I spend the majority of my time thinking about and doing those things. And I just take everything that's not one of those things and put it through the, the, the bullshit filter. First of all, is this bullshit? Is this just bullshit? And if it is, done. It's gone. So that right there will take 50% of the shit rattling around in your brain and get rid of it. You dump it, it's Supa de Mierda de Toro. It's bullshit soup in a mug. Dump it out, clean the mug out, and use it for something useful. I, I don't have time for it. So you're not wading through 50% of the useless bullshit most people do anyway. Then the next thing is influence and concern. It's not bullshit. Does it concern me? If it concerns me, at least I'll look a little bit more further at it. Like, what are the implications of it? What else does it mean? What might it lead to? But I also say, well, what's my influence on this? And if my influence is a zero, then even if I'm concerned about it, I don't have time for it. Well, what if everybody did that? Then they might get shit done. See, I think that the problem is we have been led to believe that concern alone is what's necessary to prevent things or improve things. Right? So if we don't concern ourselves with this, oh my God. But if you don't actually have any influence over it, then what good does the concern do? It might make you feel like, like it's important and that you should do something. But if you don't have anything to do, screw it. Go find something where you have influence. So I think that's the clear-headed nature. It's just the very, the very simple three-stage filter. Bullshit or not. Bullshit, gone. Don't even care. And just, just, Think about that, right? So since I don't care about bullshit, for instance, it made it very easy for me in my Outlook filters to say if subject line contains Oprah, delete immediately. Because even if it happens to not be spam, even after one of my friends say, I saw this on Oprah, I still don't care, right? So like, imagine your, your mind like the Outlook email filters, right? So it comes in, it's got a certain connotation attached to it, 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 you just already know it's bullshit. It has, it, it, it seems like it might be bullshit, but it, so it's just flagged, right? This could be bullshit. Cursory examination reveals it is or isn't. Bullshit. Delete. Right? And that's the mentality you have to have if you want to be 
what you're calling clear-headed. I just think of it as I'm putting my time and attention on things that I actually have influence over and or give a shit about. So, and I always bring, you know, bring it back to things because at least I'm aware of them, like the Kardashians. But understand when I, when I riff on like people watching the Kardashians, it's, it's more of a symbol for all that's pointless. It's not really them. It's just like that, that's, there's so much pointless crap out there that I don't, I'm not even aware of. So at least I'm aware of that one because, you know, if my wife puts ETV or something on in the evening, there, there's always showing a picture of Kim's ass. And her butt, too. Anyway, you get the joke if you know the meme that's going around. Anyway, um, you know, so I know they exist. So I know that's one example of pointless bullshit. So, so, so the clear-headedness is not really clear-headed. It's just the, the, the immediate removal of anything pointless. Now, as for what makes me able to get up every day and kick life in the balls and just makes me have this attitude of, screw it if you don't like it. I have shit to do. And I'm going to do what I do for the people that benefit from it and that like it and want it that way, and all the people that don't like it, and all the people that don't want it that way, have a million other choices where they can go get their information, or their interactions, or their friendships, or whatever it is. You don't like me? You don't want to have a beer with me? I don't give a shit. Goodbye. Right? Most people, can't, I don't know why, they can't live that way. The truth is I wasn't always this way. But along the way, I figured out, this works. This works. And it makes you effing happy. I mean, do you understand that? It makes you happy. When you just finally let go of all the crap, like, what will they think? I don't care. I don't care what somebody's going to think. Why would I care what you think? Especially if I'm ne Like, the majority of people are worried about what people think who you're never going to see again. I, I, I mean, that right there, if, if it's a group of people or a person who I will never again see in my life, who I'm not attempting to... Uh, went over to something. I'm not, uh, I haven't been asked by them to provide them with information that might help them live a better life or whatever. There's just a random person that happened to like cross interact with. Why would I care what you think? Why? What possible advantage to my life is there? Now, there's plenty of disadvantages. The first being, I'll not be myself, I'll be some fake version of myself, I'll be plastic. Right, So I think that if you actually just got clear-headed enough, is the way to look at it, I guess, for about a day to filter all the bullshit out of your life, all the stuff that doesn't matter, and, and then take all the stuff that you care about, but you can't really do anything about it, and you just put that on the shelf. So I've got action items only. I've got my concerns. that I'm, I, They're there. I'll look at them once in a while to see if there is there anything I can do or is there anything they're going to cause. So the, the issue's there. I can't really fix that issue, but the spiral down effect is this, and that's what I can, and that goes in that little shelf, and all the bullshit goes in the delete file. And then said to yourself, okay, now that I've got that done, what do I most want? And I think you would find that the answer would be to just be happy with what I have. And maybe I want more, but I want to learn to be happy. I think that's what most people aren't, is they're miserable. They're not happy. So if you, okay, well, I want to be happy. And if you mean it when you say that, then you say, well, what's going to make me happy? And, and the answer is so obvious, is being who you really are. So if being who you really are will make you happy, then don't you owe it to yourself to be just that. And this is where all the, the people that are so wrapped up in, in religion and crap come in and go, but if everybody did that, the whole world would be in chaos. And it, Shut up, because they're not going to. 
And if you're worried about when you when you say I'm going to give myself permission to be who I really am, and if you worry at all, like well, if I do that, then something bad could happen. It's not going to. It's not going to. It's the person that says I'm not worried about it at all, without ever doing reflection on it. That's probably going to go out and do something bad. Most people aren't going to do anything bad. They're just going to be who they are. And most people are intrinsically good. That's that's like that's that's like my big argument against the the major religious communities. Where most people are inherently evil, and only God can fix them. Like, crap, right? Because people all the time help each other with no law or no commandment to make them do so. You know, I would I would put it this way: everybody listening to my voice right now that's helped somebody in the last month in any way, shape, or form, put your hand up, or if you're in a place where you can't. Raise your foot under your desk or something. Put your hand up. Pretend you're in a big room with other people. And you might imagine if we were in a big room, all these people that listen to this show together, there'd be a lot of hands up or a lot of people standing or with their foot in the air or whatever I could trick you into doing, okay? So then I would say anybody that has not helped at least two people put your hand down. I bet you very few people are putting their hand down or their foot down right now. But still hands up. Okay, what law was, was, was being followed by you that made you do that? And, and the answer is probably none, right? And, and what, did you do it out of fear of going to hell if you didn't do it or because the, the book said you're supposed to do it or whatever? Or did you do it because you're like, okay, this person needs my help and I can help, so I'm going to, right? So I think that we're naturally social creatures and we're naturally helpful. But we're too concerned in our modern society that the way we manifest that might offend somebody or might upset somebody or they won't like us. Well, here's the reality. If I put you in a room and you talk to 50 people, it's probably the case that like 20 will like you just fine. 10 will really like you. Um, you know, so you'll have that group of 20. 10 could take you or leave you. And 20 just aren't going to like you. And no matter what you do, those, those people, right? Those two-fifths of people, just you don't have chemistry. You're not going to get along. So screw them. They're not bad people. They're just not your people. That doesn't mean you can't get on with each other where you have to, but you're not going to be engaged with each other. You're not going to spend time with each other. You're not going to have your kids do playdates together. You're just going to be like, that person and me just don't gel. So most of the people that are out there that are unwilling to stand up and say, I don't give a damn what anybody thinks about me, are most concerned with that two-fifths of people that are never going to like you anyway. So all you're doing is making your mis yourself miserable and attempt to please people that aren't going to like you anyway, that don't affect your life, that you're never going to see again. When, when I look at it that way, I don't actually know how to be any other way. I, 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 don't, I don't even understand why everybody isn't already being this way. I, when you really think about it that way, because that's the truth. You're going to have about two-fifths that like you, one-fifth that really, really like you of that two-fifths, a fifth of people that take you or leave you, hang out with you, but unless circumstances dictate it, and another two-fifths that are going to be like, that guy and me don't get along. And I think the only reason for, for you when you're dealing with somebody in that two-fifths to really make an effort to engage with that person is because you have something to learn from each other and you're both doing something meaningful that's similar. So there are people, for instance, in the permaculture world that are in that two-fifths. They don't really like me because I'm a scary survivalist and I like guns and, and whatever else and I don't believe in global warming. But if that, and if that person's just some random asshat, I don't care. 
But if there's somebody that's getting good shit done and they're at least open to the opportunity, then I'll engage with them on a very civil level and we'll try to find a common ground. And I'm happy to do that. So when I say, you know, basically if you don't like me, piss off, that's, that's for like day to day generics. Whenever there's a need for interaction, if I had a, a group I was part of that was setting policy for something, And there was people in that group I didn't really like. I'll go with Mark Shepard then. I don't have to like you to work with you. In the end, we'll all say our piece. We'll take a vote or whatever it is. We'll decide on that. And then we're going to work together on getting that done the best way possible. But I'm not going to hang with you. And if you don't like the color of my hair or whatever, I'm not going to have any skin come off my nose over it. And again, I think if you actually think about it from the prospect of you're trying to please the people that you're never going to please anyway, it's pretty hard to continue to worry about what they think about you. And if you take it on the standpoint of I want to be happy and I want to be successful, then I think you'll notice that the most successful and happy people in the world think this way. So why wouldn't you do what works, I guess? Other than there's some mental snare holding you back, a fear. And understand that it's fear. And there's two types of fear, rational and irrational. Rational fear is here comes a truck that's going to run me over if I don't jump. Before I can even think that much, the hard wiring in my body has me jump and probably grab and pull somebody with me out of the way if I can too, right? There's no law that says I have to grab you, but I'm going to grab you because intrinsically I want to help other people. Yay! All right? So there's, there's that type of fear. That's rational fear. Rational fear is I don't think I should have to pay my taxes, but I'm going to because I don't want to go to jail. Right? I don't want my life destroyed by the government, so I'll give them their money. Here, render to Caesar what's Caesar's. That's a rational fear. Okay, Irrational fears are where there's no compelling reason to actually be afraid, but yet we're afraid. And I think that the majority of people who have this problem, that can't just be themselves, are basing it on irrational fears. Irrational fear would be those people over there will notice that I look different or act different or talk different, and they won't like me. But I'm never going to see them again, and they have no influence on my life whatsoever, but I still care about what they think because I'm afraid for them to not like me or notice me or whatever. Uh, that's irrational. So rational fears are to be ch channeled and harnessed, adapted to and overcome. Irrational fears are to be banished. Let's take another one. Next up, I have an email I want to read from Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer, and it's his review of Permaculture Voices 2. And I think there's a major life lesson in this email that um, may not be what you think it's going to be uh, when I read it to you. But I think it ties in well with the last question. It says, hey man, here's my review that is out on PV2. Review of Permaculture Voices 2 in San Diego, California, March 11, 2015. For days the whole time I reviewed my notes over and over. I changed my PowerPoint three times. I would take breaks uh, racking and icing mead. I spent hours grinding up honey to make it into powdered sugar, talking to my dad over and over what we had to do. It was not at the start of the, uh, of the event on March 4th, and I was not able to stay after 6 p.m. on Sunday the 8th. We got on site Friday the 6th at noon. I was doing just fine the whole time, confident on my program, feeling that we did all we could for the program to show that you can make good products from bees without exploiting them. My wonderful wife was so happy that I just absorbed with her. She had never been to the beach and never to California. I was feeling really good, and she, uh, and she could come and see what I really do. We walked into the outdoor pavilion. 
The speaker was just getting ready to end when I entered. The building was full. The event was super large. Okay, I got scared. I talk all the time to kids, beekeepers, and teach at colleges all the time. This was super different. I looked over, and there was Jack Spierko from the Survival Podcast out of Texas, Charlie Mitchell from Perma Ethos in West Virginia, Josiah Wallingford with Breek of Freedom in Montana, Michael Vertries from New Grasses Farm out of Tennessee, and a table from Colorado Permaculture. I walked over, and three tables full of people got up and started to line up. We greeted by hugging, shaking hands, and patting each other on the back. I realized that myself and my wife were received by many great people, and I was just a beekeeper. We sat down to my wife telling me she was so excited, and my dad just walk, walking into the same response. The general, as I call him, or just Plops, has been with me every place. He's my best friend, my confidant, uh, the person that keeps me from distraction. He was all smiles, and he shook hands with people from the Survival Podcast and Perma Ethos. I did not know that people really knew who we were until Mark Shepard came over. I spent that night and all day the next, and, all, and, and, the, and the next day meeting people, standing with people that had questions. I got some good info on fungi and got to see a video of Paul Stamets and his beehive out of mushrooms. Hell, one guy had fungi that would eat cigarette butts. The class, uh, the classes were super cool. I think that if more people would share their info like Diego had put forth, we might have a chance of being real humans. From people networking, going to Earthship homes, handing out free seed, and just learning as much as one can. If you miss permaculture voices, you missed a lot in that field. There's literally too many incredible people, moments, talks, and relationships that came out of this event. I cannot recap everything. The people I got to meet and the tears uh, ran down my face after my talk. I gave all I could. I walked away with nothing left to give on the last day. I had many people tell me that I did a good job. I made them laugh and cry. I hope we can come next time. I wish those that got that I got to meet uh, will not forget me. And I'm sure I'm not sure I'm still not sure what happened. I got to meet great people doing epic shit. Did, quote did, did I tell you Bill Mollison's grandson signed my book taking uh, a frame of capped honey back to Oz so his granddad could have it with his tea. Uber geeked out on that one. MJ the Bee Whisperer. Um, there's one line in here that makes me just want to go punch Michael in the face as his friend. Yes, I might actually punch somebody in the face as my friend. Not really, but metaphorically. And that is, and I was just a beekeeper. This guy's one of the most solid human beings I've ever met in my life. And just a beekeeper my ass. A guy that dedicates his life to teaching this skill set to kids that will grow into adults, that can have a livelihood, actually doing things to repair the damage we've done to this planet, and you're just a beekeeper? If you ever say that again, Michael, I'm going to kick your big ass. I really am. I, I think that what really ties in here, too, is that Michael said he didn't even realize that anybody knew who he was. This is what I tried to explain to you guys last week in all three shows that I did leading up to Friday. You're more important than you think you are. And if you're doing anything meaningful, you're a leader. And real leaders have the attitude we were just talking about. They don't worry about the people that don't like them. They worry about the people that want to follow, that want to emulate, that want to actually step up to a point where they go, they become the leader. And they do it with some humility, but they do it with just dogged determination. And I think the biggest thing is you walk away with nothing left to give. That, that got added in to my rules. Um, 
that I that I, I put out last week about living life on your own terms. And this is an example of somebody that's doing it and maybe doesn't even really realize it. Right? Because I'll tell you one thing. You know, Michael might get nervous when he's talking to a whole bunch of people about beekeeping when they're all beekeepers and they're not kids that are a blank slate. But it's not because he cares that they won't like them. I, I, I've met people my whole life and I know a person doesn't give a shit if you like him or not when I, when I meet one. And that's Mike Jordan. He doesn't care because he's too eccentric and crazy. When you meet somebody that's like all eccentric and crazy about something and they're just constantly just coming up with new ideas and stuff and talking and having fun and trying to give of what they have, you can't be that way and give a shit what other people think. I, the, the, the apprehension there was, am I going to do a good enough job for these people because they care? Right? That's a totally different dynamic. And that's the balance. And that's why I chose this email as the, the follow-up to the last question. Right? So when you say just be yourself and don't worry about what other people think at all, then people say, well, listen, they're supposed to be, you know, I talk about servant leadership and stuff like that. Well, when people are actually there for you, when people actually care about you, when people actually want to learn for, from you, then it's incumbent upon you to try to make sure that you do your best and leave nothing on the table and that you make the information understandable. If I go talk to a group of people about permaculture and they are from a, a group of people that have a certain thing that they understand, well, I'm going to draw analogies based on what they know, right? If I talk to people that are football fans, I'll use football in my analogies. If I talk to people that are fishermen, I'll use fishing in my analogies. And I care that I do a good enough job for them and that the information that I provide to them is helpful and accurate and useful and actionable. But if some segment of them just doesn't like my personality, well, they can go kiss my ass for all I care, right? Because I'm giving all I've got. So I can't worry about the people that just don't like me. I have to worry about the people that are there for me. And I think that's the kind of person Michael is. And again, dude, no more of this, I'm just a beekeeper bullshit. Um, you're the bee whisperer. Be damn proud of it. Your advice is sought and you're doing good shit in the world and you're, you're recognized for it. And, and I'll tell you the biggest thing that this makes me think of. Back when I still worked with, with Neil Franklin in the corporate world, um, we had several companies that we were running together and one of them was a, basically a contract placement firm. So a, con a company that would need a, a very high-level technical contractor for eight weeks would come to us and say, this is what this person needs to be able to do. This is where the project is. This is what it'll pay. This is, And we would go find them a person. And there was a, a girl that worked for him there named Van, who he had worked really hard with to kind of encourage and mentor and bring up. He saw potential in her, and he went out of his way to develop it. And she, we had recently promoted her to vice president of sales. And we had kind of an after-hours mixer that she was invited to. And we're all sitting around tables, myself and Neil and Carrie Tabolka, who was the president of one of the other companies, and another person that was a president of the company and a CEO of the, the holding corporation. And we're all sitting down, and, and Van walks in. And she knows me better than she kind of knows the other people that are there. And she said, and she was like overwhelmed and said, like, it's all big people that are here. Not tall or large, but big people. I could hear the apprehension in your voice. Like, I'm not equivalent to these people. That's the problem for people. 
That that's that's what Michael's going through here. Of course you are. Of course you are. You, there's a seat at the table for you as an equal. Not as some subservient that's fortunate to be allowed to come with these big people. We're all just human beings. We're all just doing the best we can. And if you want to be in a position of leadership, whether it's in an organization or a church or a company, then you have to walk in as an equal with everybody else is there. Or you're never going to get that position of leadership. Or even when you have it, you won't even realize you do. Because again, this lady was now VP of sales. She was on par with everybody she was sitting next to. But yet still saw herself as inferior. You can't do that if you want to make a difference in the world. The people that rise to the occasion as leaders in our society are people that one say one day just say, you know what, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm appointing myself head of this movement that I'm part of, and I'm going to go do it. And I don't give a shit anybody likes it or not. Don't care. I'm sure somebody will like it, and they can come along for the ride, and some that don't like it can go find something else to do with themselves. It's really simple. But, Michael, you're not just a beekeeper. You're an awesome dude. You're doing great things for the world. Keep it up. And get over your inferiority complex. You're equal to everybody that you interact with. That goes to all of you. You're not just a beekeeper or just whatever fill-in-the-blank it is for you. You use as an excuse in your life. Let's take another one. Okay, so here comes another one of the Jack was right category. So all the way back in the Jetta Diesel TDI days, and for those that are newer to the show, you may not know this, I started this show in June of 2008, uh, and I did it in my car for about two years, two and a half years before I took it full-time. And all the way back when I was still driving around in that little Jetta diesel back and forth to work and doing the show in the morning, I said that there would be a mileage tax eventually rolled out. And over the years, little test pilot projects and stuff have come along. But here we go. <laughs> Oregon to debut, my, to debut mileage-based gas tax helped by a Waterloo company. Device measures distance, travel, location, and can connect data to smartphones. Uh, this is great. This is just wonderful. A Waterloo-based company is helping the state of Oregon implement a new voluntary program that will tax drivers based on distance driven instead of a flat gas tax. Waterloo's intelligent Mectronic system plays an integral part in the new program. The company created DriveSync a platform that can essentially connect a car to the Internet or other devices such as smartphones. DriveSync makes it possible for insurance companies to assess customers based on usage, for example. Quote, it's very interesting approach to change from one form of taxation on the gas pump to a fair usage fee on the road, end quote, said Ben Miners, the vice president for innovation at IMS, an interview with Craig Norris of the Morning Edition Monday. Quote, having a usage fee on the road provides people with transparency in terms of how much is actually costing to be on the road, end quote, he said. Quote, so hopefully people will make more informed decisions before they take their car out to drive to the corner store, end quote. In other words, so hopefully we can make people not drive. But if they don't drive, we don't get any money, and we won't have any money, so we're screwed. So we're full of shit, just like we are when we tax cigarettes. 
That's the, the Jack Spirico bullshit uh, filtered version of that so far. Drivers won't need to do anything special for their vehicles to take part in the program, but they do have to register and get DriveSync device, which can be plugged into their vehicles. It's a standard port in every vehicle built after 1996. Oh, gee. <laughs> It's just sitting there for you. They put it in in 1996. This is great, right? The port's just below the steering wheel. You reach down and plug it in, and you can drive and not need to worry about it ever again, said Miners. The program will start for Oregon drivers on July 1st. Drivers can choose how much to share. <laughs> You're going to give the government access to your information. And choose how much information they get. And they'll only take the stuff you give them permission to take. Has anyone heard of Edward Snowden? Anyway, let me get back to this. For the privacy-minded, participants can choose how much information they want to reveal to the state of Oregon. Drivers can choose to only share the distance the vehicle travels and avoid location information. However, if they do share location information, they won't be taxed when they drive on private roads or head out of state, for example. If you head out of state. So if I don't turn the location on, you're going to tax me for Oregon taxes when I'm driving in Washington or California? Hmm. <laughs> the billing itself is handled by another company. Oh, gee! A third company has access to my information. This is just dicky, isn't it? SANF ITS. ITS, by the way, guys, would be Intelligent Traffic Systems. Let me give you, I'll go ahead and read the rest of it, um, and then I'm going to give you an aside before I give you my thoughts on this, which has partnered with IMS and the state of Oregon. Every quarter, drivers will get an invoice showing how much fuel they've consumed, how far they've traveled. Participants will get a gas tax refund and then pay their usage tax at a rate of 1.5 cents per mile driven. Now people can see that when they're driving, when their cars are actually causing impact to the road, the funds or fees that they're uh, paying are directly applied to help maintain those roads, maintain the infrastructure, repair those potholes, said miners. Oh, dear God. Oh, According to miners, as people switch to vehicles that consume less gas, governments need to find new ways to raise funds. Let me read the Jack Spierko version of that. According to miners, as people switch to vehicles that consume less gas like the government claims to want, the government needs to find new ways to steal their money. All right? The revenue shortfall from traditional gas-based tax approaches is only increasing in magnitude. With the prevalence of highly fuel-efficient vehicles, electric vehicles, and hybrid vehicles, miners said. All right, so let me just back up a second to the thing I wanted to talk about, intelligent traffic services, or intelligent traffic systems, ITS. Um, yeah, you thought it was all tactical, right? No, ITS, intelligent traffic systems, I have some view into this because when I used to sell hard, computer hardware, a lot of it was ruggedized hardware that went into these ITS systems. But what actually makes me think of is the Terminator series, not the movies, but the TV series that didn't make it, uh, you know, where this young, hot-looking teenage Terminator chick comes back to take care of John Connor as a boy, right? And at one point, I think it might have been the only season, might have been the first season, they they hook her up to the traffic system in Phoenix, I believe, so that they can get something done. I don't remember what it was. But the, the, the series cliffhanger ends with when he disconnects her, he goes, did you see it? And she says, I 
saw everything. I saw everything. And indeed, that's what intelligent traffic systems would allow one to do, is to see everything. To know who went where, when, how long they were there, how fast they traveled getting there. To gather information literal and transmit it literally at the speed of light minus a small percentage. We call that nominal velocity of propagation in the communications industry. So when an electronic signal goes down a copper wire, it travels basically at the speed of light, but it's impeded by the copper medium. We call this refractive index in, in optical fiber, but there'll be a percentage like 76%. So 76% NVP would be 76% the speed of light that this information is collected and transmitted all over the uh, world at if they wanted to and collected into a central database like, I don't know, in Utah or some. Uh, this is... This is where this leads. So you're supposed to take the same government that, that said that they weren't you know, snooping around in your social media accounts and they weren't tracking your phone and they weren't collecting information from your phone calls and they weren't recording all this data when you never gave them permission to, right? And they did it anyway. And now you're supposed to trust them that if you put one of these boxes in your car and say, I don't want to share this information, that they're not going to take it? Let me tell you. This is the first step in this direction. This is about total control of a population. This is about being able to know where you are and where you went, how you got there, how fast you got there, and eventually who went with you. Because, gee, it interacts with a smartphone. We're becoming a society where nobody ever leaves without their phone. So this device and future versions of it, and there will be future versions of it, could conceivably determine not only that I was driving my car at 65 miles an hour on I-30 at 4.30 p.m. on Sunday, but that you were with me because it would just know you, it would recognize your phone. Your phone has a unique signature. It's registered to you. So you were there too. And how would they get us to turn that data on? Like if there actually was any way to not provide that data, well, hold on. If you're there, then I have multiple occupancy vehicle. I can drive in the car share lane. Well, you'll say, but I could just cheat then. I could put my phone and uh, take your phone with me, and I could use the carpool lane because I have two phones in the car. Oh, the cop will still pull you over and write you a ticket. But if you don't have the second phone with you when you're driving in the carpool lane, hmm, you must have been, they'll send you a ticket in the mail. They'll put it on your invoice. They'll even say you can use the high occupancy vehicle lane, but if you don't have two people in there, then you got a problem. Cop will still pull you over and verify that you are using one of the little devices. Oh, he won't have to. Oh, his car will be able to read your device. He'll be like, you're getting billed, so it's okay. You're not getting billed, and I don't see anybody else in that car. I'm pulling you over to give you a ticket, old-fashioned school way. Eventually, it'll just be that every car will be mandated by the federal government to come with this technology built into it instead of just a port to plug it into. This isn't going away, guys. This isn't going away. And you know what you can do about it? Pretty much nothing. If we continue to have the same people running this country that we've had running for the last 50 years, and I see no reason to believe the people of this country are going to wake up anytime soon and actually change things, 
Because changing things isn't putting the D in versus the R or the R versus the D. Change things is to actually change things, to actually change out the whole system. This is just going to go forward. This is the plan. And you know how much money is at stake here? This is going to make people billions of dollars, billions and billions of dollars in so many different ways, providing the service, providing the equipment. But it's, Jack, it's, it's voluntary. Because the people can actually see what it's costing them to drive. What? I can actually see what it costs me to drive in taxes? I can see that every time I put gas in my car. But it's for the hybrid vehicles. There's, there's so many of them now. Yeah, 8% of the vehicles on the road. 8%. If they actually just wanted to change the gas tax at the federal level to make up the existing shortfall, they'd have to add one cent. One cent. At the federal level. State level, another penny or two. Done. You know what the real problem is? All of that money that's supposed to go for maintenance of the roads and all, you know what a lot of it does? A lot of it doesn't go for that. A lot of it goes into the general fund. Yes, and then they do use your, 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 your gas taxes to oppress your liberty in ways that have nothing to do with street signs or stop signs or potholes. If they weren't stealing the money from themselves out of the coffer that they created, they'd have plenty of money to fix the roads. If we weren't spending ridiculous amounts of time to fix roads, just down the way from me, if you're coming to this uh, this event on Saturday, there's a road called Silver Creek. It's a great back way to come to my place. Don't use it because it's closed for six months to fix one bridge. It's about 30 feet long, and it's flat. It's not a suspension bridge, and it goes across a ditch. Six months. Six months. Hmm, I wonder if we're paying too much. Seriously, six in six months, I was part of a group of combat engineers that built ten miles of road, four lanes wide, in the middle of a freaking jungle. And yeah, we had a lot of people, but it was 500. That included people like doing uh, laundry and uh, uh, working on the vehicles and maintenance and all that. Not all on a road crew. There's probably 250 guys out on that road working every day. They put ten miles of road in in six months in a jungle. Six months to put a bridge in. But see, it has to be... No, bullshit. Remember when the earthquake happened in Japan? There was a road that was ripped in half. The road was literally ripped in half. One side surged up, one side surged down. There was a 30-foot difference between the left lane and the right lane. In two weeks, the Japanese had that road completely repaired and were able to drive on it again. So maybe if we weren't being extorted by the companies that are actually doing the maintenance work and they would get shit done in a reasonable amount of time, it would cost less to do all of this. We live in a place now where a contracting agency that gets one good highway contract will milk it for 10 years, the owner will sell off the company assets and retire on a single contract. The problem isn't a shortage of money in gas taxes. The problem is the effective management of the public's funds in the maintain, maintaining and building of roads and bridges. That's where the problem is. Plenty of money to do it. Too much extortion. Too much underhanded stuff. And gee, isn't that the biggest reason we need government? Who would build the roads? I'm just saying. But this isn't about building roads. This is about the government gaining access to all the information as it pertains to your travel. Gee, Progressive Insurance has been doing this for a while. It's also voluntary. I'm telling you, I'll bet you cars being made today 
don't need this little box. I bet you any vehicle being made today, and probably it's been made for the last four or five years, already has whatever technology is necessary inside it to do all of this stuff. Which must mean that since there's no law that says it has to be that way, that the giant corporations that make the cars are somehow in league with the government who supposedly regulates them. No. Wait and see if that doesn't come up. One day, they'll just say, well, we're doing this now, and uh, and it'll be like this announcement. Like, you don't have to do anything if your vehicle was made after 2012, and everybody will blame Obama. Because Obama can tell the CEO to Ford or Toyota what to do with themselves. I think it's the other way around. You're watching it all play out right in front of you. This is modern neo-fascism. If I can control you, I don't need to put chains on you. In fact, if I can control you sufficiently, you'll put your own chains on for me, and you'll polish them and be proud of them. Such is the fate of our people if they continue to, 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 to just accept this crap for what it is. What will, I, what will I do? I'll resist it by all means that I have available to me. You know, I have some older vehicles I'll keep around. Maybe they don't have this thing. But sooner or later, even I will fall. Because what they'll say is, if your vehicle's going down the road without one of these thingamabobs on it, and you go past a cop, he's going to know that you're driving basically an unregistered vehicle. <laughs> he's going to fool you over write you a ticket for driving, just like you don't have your registration sticker in the window. And this is coming everywhere in the country. Of course, they'll test bed it in Oregon and Washington and California where eco-hippies think they're helping. You think you're helping, but you're not. You're helping. You're just not helping the planet, and you're not helping the people, and the government's not on your side, and it's not really them that's in power. You're helping the corporate elites that want this information mainly so they can sell you more shit and make more effective use of your data and more effectively control you. But just keep believing you're helping. Let's take another one. So next up is something I think is pretty cool. I'm just going to play you the video that came along with the story, though, the audio of the video, and uh, you can check out the actual video later if you want to. But this is really cool. It's about a new vertical farm going in in Wyoming, and uh, I have some thoughts about vertical farming and indoor farming in general that I'll be back with after I play this for you. I'm Penny McBride. And I'm Nona Yahya. Vertical Harvest is a three-story hydroponic greenhouse that will be sited in downtown Jackson Hole. Vertical Harvest will grow produce year-round and employ citizens with disabilities. Did you know that 78% of people with developmental disabilities in Wyoming are unemployed? Hi, I'm Caroline Croft-Este, and I'm the employment facilitator with Vertical Harvest. In the past, people with developmental disabilities spent their day in dayhab programs that had sheltered workshops, which were very very segregated and not integrated into our community. Vertical Harvest is going to be different. My role as the employment facilitator with Vertical Harvest will be to hire and train adults with developmental disabilities, training them in seeding and harvesting of the vegetables, also running the retail store, and um, assisting with deliveries for Vertical Harvest. We've been talking about what could a greenhouse look like in Jackson, and at the same time, a local uh, town council member showed us the piece of land that is right south of the parking lot um, on Millward and Simpson, and it measures 
pictures 30 feet wide by 150 feet long. So we kind of looked at each other and we're like, what do we do with this? And what we said about Caroline's needs, as well as the need for our community to grow local produce, we said, well, what if we go vertical? That way we could maximize the amount of food grown, as well as the amount of jobs we could provide. The trick about it is it's basically three horizontal greenhouses stacked on one another. The growing system that our greenhouse engineer has helped us design is a carousel system. The growing trays will actually revolve to take advantage of all of the natural south-facing sunlight, and they'll be on a timer to maximize all of the natural sunlight possible. It's, it's like a dry cleaning carousel. Mm-hmm. And what's really innovative about it is that it adds, our greenhouse is three stories, but this carousel gives us the ability to add a fourth floor by taking advantage of that vertical space. In a hydroponic growing system, plants receive their nutrients directly in the water. They aren't soil-based. They are grown in a organic material. In our case, it will be coconut husks um, that the plants will be residing in, and they will get their nutrients th- through the water that is constantly fed through the root system. We'll be growing 100,000 pounds of vegetables a year, so we'll be able to supply restaurants within our community, uh, programs such as the hospital, um, as well as our local community. If you're looking for a fresh tomato in the middle of winter and you want to support an innovative employment model, come see us at Vertical Harvest. Okay, well, I, I, I note a few things there that are pretty impressive, and, and, and that is that instead of a taxpayer-funded program to, uh, to, to help developmentally challenged people, why don't you give them something useful to do that they would be good at that actually helps other people and lets them earn a living? And I, I, I think that farming, especially this way, is something that you can train just about anybody to do, even people that are somewhat impeded. So it's, it's almost like the solution to a lot of our problems would actually be the market itself, that if we can find things for people to do useful, uh, that, that, that that would help everybody. And I don't think that's just developmentally challenged. I think, see, here's the thing. Like, so people, oh, wow, this, this helps developmentally challenged. And somebody else will put in a vertical farm and hire veterans. And somebody else will put one in and just hire anybody that wants a job. And I think they all do the same thing. They find people who need work and give them something meaningful to do. And I, I think one of the biggest problems that we all have is feeling that what we do matters, to feel that we have a purpose. Uh, I've seen people in a really bad way in life who just... You know, they're just not happy, and they have any litany of problems, whether it be a substance abuse problem, whether it's a personal abuse when they just abuse themselves, or uh, whether it's a person that's just depressed all the time or whatever. And if you can get them to a point where they have something to do that matters, and they have enough to provide for themselves at the same time, and they don't feel like they're going to be in a poorhouse next week, it's almost like it it heals them rather than a drug. Like just like doing shit makes people feel better. I, I think there's a lot to be said for that. So I, I like that aspect of this. This is a new thing that people can do something with and and have a meaningful contribution to society as part of. Now, vertical farming itself and hydroponic growing and things like that. Um, I think there's a real future for it. But I don't think it will solve all of our problems. And I think that that's the problem that we live in today. We have this, this, this mental 
uh, issue where we think, okay, if we just have this one thing, it'll fix everything. You know, I've had people tell me, well, I, I don't know if it's permaculture that's going to do this or biochar that's going to do this or aquaponics that's going to do this. Well, both of those other things are types of permaculture. See, it's like there's a thing mentality, like a microwave mentality that we're in. And I think there's a lot of people that think, well, like, we'll feed the world with vertical farms. Well, vertical farms do some things good, and there's other things they just don't do well. You know, so they didn't say they were going to grow corn. They were going to grow microgreens and tomatoes. And I think you can go all the way up from microgreens to salad greens, not much of a problem. Um, but a lot of other crops don't really make sense in this type of a system. You're certainly not going to grow rice in this type of system. You're not going to grow corn. It's not that you couldn't grow corn, but it wouldn't do very well. And I guess you have people walk through and knock it with sticks to make sure it pollinated. Pollination is another issue. So if you have tomatoes, unless they're a hybrid tomato that's like self-pollinating, it probably would help to have pollinators. So they may release pollinating insects. People think when you uh, have a greenhouse-type environment, a building environment, that you'd never have any problems with insects, like insect pests. But son of a gun, they find their way in there, and they actually could be a bigger problem long-term because they're in this perfect little environment where they can reproduce all year round. So then you have to bring in predator insects or think about ways of suppressing them. Now, an interesting thing is most flying insects can be killed with lemon oil and water. So a misting system that went off every once in a while that misted lemon oil and water would suppress a lot of your flying pests uh, and give a lemony flavor to your salad greens. Isn't that great? And smell really good and not cause it. And, I mean, that's like something that I'm going to be installing in the duck the duck house. When we move, I'm going to put a watering system out there that, you know, maybe once every 30 minutes the little solenoid goes off and a 10-second mist of lemon oil-infused water. It's a lot less expensive than the uh, organic fly-killing pesticide by the can that's lemon oil and water. But I think with vertical farming, we have to be very optimistic to what can be done, and we have to be very realistic about what it can't do. Again, you're not going to grow soybeans and corn. I think we grow plenty of soybeans and corn, by the way, way more than we need to be. But if you're going to stop growing soybeans and corn, and maybe not stop altogether, but if you're going to cut back the production of soybeans and corn and focus on more nutrient-dense, uh, diverse crops, something has to make up the calories. And the easiest thing to make the calories up with is meat. I mean, when you look at, if you're trying to build a stable, sustainable future for humanity, meat is part of the diet in that. Because cows eat grass and grass grows back. So as we take land out of production and we produce more meat, we still need the farming, ranching, civopasture, polyculture, tree crops, vine crops, shrub crops to go with all this stuff. So I, I think the biggest challenge for mankind right now is to understand that we, we, we do not have a solution to any problem. We have multiple solutions to multiple problems, and they have to be integrated. But I do think it would be interesting to see... In the future, buildings being built with farm systems rate integrated into them. So that the outer layer of a building, especially the western, the eastern, and the southern side of the building, could all be wrapped in farm. And of course, the reason that that's a complicated issue is that's the prime real estate for the resident, whether they're a corporate resident or whether they are a, uh, a residential residence. So if I build a high-rise building that I'm going to put condos in or apartments in and I'm going to rent or sell them to people, 
what does everybody want? A view, right? So if I put this vertical farm on the building, not only do I like push you one back in the view, I got these people coming through your glass, you know, view farming. So that makes that a little more complicated than I think some people have put uh, their mind to. I think for a a commercial customer, I don't think this is a big deal, but for a residential building, I think that's going to be a problem unless unless the farm is actually a micro farm and every resident has their own micro farm and it's an option. So I can either farm it or I can not farm it or I can pay somebody to farm it for me. Um, and it, a lot of these things are so automated, they don't need constant attention either. And if you start thinking of like the, 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 the dry cleaner technology, well then all that space can be used and there could be certain floors where maintenance is performed where all that happens is the plantings go up and down and move. And now we've solved that problem. And now, instead of not having a view, what I have is a view through this beautiful place where stuff's growing. So it's almost like I'm, I'm surrounded by this little jungle of, of lettuce, so to speak. You could start getting really creative with crops you could grow if you built a building with that intent in mind. I think we're so far from that, though. I think that's really nice in futuristic movies and in futurist you know, drawings and stuff now. But I think the real future of vertical farming is taking buildings that are just a farm, like this one. And I, I do think, though, there is a potential for a lot of empty warehouses to be rehabbed into this type of a, of a state. If we could just open them up and put in skylights and, 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 and light, you know, open up the walls with, with glass and plexiglass uh, or uh, greenhouse fabric or whatever it's going to be. I think there is millions of square feet. So everybody wants to have this futuristic Buck Rogers type thing of we're going to build skyscrapers and people live in and they grow their own food. Well, you're never going to grow all the food for the people in the building that they live in. It's not going to happen, right? It's just not. Um, and if you did, it would be very resource intensive. When we, when we crack that nut, we have interst we have interstellar space travel down pat, right? Cause that's what it would take to have that type of, uh, of a life in space, so to speak. So we're a long way from that. But where we have all these empty buildings just sitting there, all this empty ground just sitting there, waiting to be transformed like this. And I think it's very encouraging. And it's something we should all kind of keep an eye on. And some of us might want to participate in, some of us may not. And uh, again, I think that there's a lot of opportunity to rehab old spaces. So it was interesting that also coming across my desk this week was another story. This was on Gizmodo, which is a very cool high-end blog. And uh, the title of this is The World's Largest Vertical Farm is Being Built in an Old Steel Mill. Dun, dun, dun. Jack was right. Not wrong, right? Okay, let me read this to you. Across the Hudson in over Newark Bay, about 15 miles from Manhattan, a group of investors led by Goldman Sachs, why did they have to be involved, is financing the construction of what will become the largest indoor vertical farm in the world inside a former steel mill. It will also serve as headquarters for a New York company called Aerofarms, which is which sprang up about a decade ago in upstate New York. The company uses a method it calls aeroponics, a concept coined by Cornell professor who is now a partner, which leaves the roots of the plants bare or dangling in the open so they can be sprayed with nutrients. The process cuts out soil and sun entirely, relying instead on LEDs and the constant circulation of air and nutrient mist to feed the plants. Aerofarms as a process results in better plants faster, using 95% less water than normal farming. 
The $30 million deal to build Arrow Farms' giant vertical garden is part of a plan to redevelop a neighborhood called Ironbound in Newark. Trust me, whatever we can do to rebuild stuff in Newark, New Jersey, needs to be done. Goldman Sachs or not, I'm happy to hear that. Um, man, Newark is one of the most dangerous places uh, in the country right now. Uh, with high unemployment rate and an industrial history that includes a super fun site, the building itself was for decades a steel mill. Right now it's home to a company that supplies those wooden shipping pallets you see stacked on the street outside grocery stores and uh, b b boat gas. Um, in short, it's an industrial space that the city of Newark, along with investors like Goldman Sachs, which operates its own mirror office in Jersey City, are interested in turning into a hub for clean technology. The farm won't be up and running until 2016, but it's a glimpse of how agricultural production is evolving in major cities, especially like New York uh, and environs, which are extraordinarily sensitive to food scarcity. Uh, there are so many entry points into the city. There are only so many entry points into the city, and most of the food on its way to New York passes through a single facility, the Hunts Point Food Distribution Center in the Bronx, which the city describes as not just as critically important, but also vulnerable to flooding and storms. As a result, cities like New York and communities like New Jersey are looking to establish alternatives to their primary food supply chain, like, for example, vertical farms in nearby boroughs and states. Of course, projects like Aero Farms are vulnerable in their own way. The loss of power or water could be catastrophic for a system that relies on constant circulation of special nutrient mist and array of LED lights. The company's goal isn't to feed the region in a disaster, but to showcase its technology and further the research of its systems. Okay, so this is encouraging, but you're seeing a critical problem. The energy quotient. It does us no good to produce food in one of these vertical farms and, and to have an energy loss, which I think is what we have. So we have an energy loss made up with a monetary gain. So it doesn't matter if we spend more energy than we get out of it as long as we get money out of it, fake energy. So the question then becomes, can one of these systems be built to run off of solar energy? If we can actually put enough solar panels on a roof of one of these things, cost-effectively, to run one, we'd be far and away better off. But here's the thing. Why LED lights? Why not sunlight? It almost seems as if someone could create light-collecting apparatus that would channel the light to the plants and at least reduce the need for LED lighting. Because part of why it grows faster is you have LED lights 24-7. So what if you could harness solar energy as light energy? Not so much a photovoltaic conversion, but... Pipe the light in. That would be another way. Now, my other concern here, and I do have a concern with these things, is that they will be used eventually to push down urban farming. So the guy that's, you know, doing farming in dirt and all, oh, look it, it's all, it's dangerous. You could get sick eating his lettuce or, or whatever. So, There has to be this space for all type of thing. And, you know, one of the things that's really resurging right now is a common man's opportunity 
is growing food and producing food and producing small livestock and things like that, small land holdings being made profitable and productive. People are making a living on as little as a quarter of an acre, and a lot of small growers are making living really nice livings on you know two to five acres. And I just don't want to see this used as an excuse that we don't need those people to push them out. I don't think that it will be, but it's something I think we should definitely keep an eye on. But just understand that these technologies like this, again, are pieces of solutions that are not yet complete. I think it's really important that we all realize that as we look at these awesome things and, and hope for the best with them. Anyway, with that, I think I'll uh, wrap up for today. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed today's show. We tried to cover a real variety of things for you today, uh, from lifestyle advice to uh, vertical farming to how to buy the right grill and a couple other things thrown in there for good mix. Tomorrow's Tuesday. It will be a single-topic show that I'll come on and teach you about something. Truth is, I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow yet. If you have any ideas for that, send me an email. Tell me what you'd like to hear a show on. Maybe tomorrow's show will be on it. Sometimes if some email comes in, the hair hits me in the ass, and there we go. We're off to the races with a, with a brand new topic. Anyway, with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares.